As we know, the director of photography is responsible for getting the shots we see on the screen for any movie. And today we're continuing with part two of our talk with Roberto Schaefer, director of photography for Quantum of Solace. Hi, this is Dan Silvestri. And Tom Pizzato. From SpyMovieNavigator.com. And today on our Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, we're going to wrap up our chat with Roberto Schaefer, director of photography in many great films, including, of course, Quantum of Solace. Now, we left off part one talking about the two elements of digital that were used in Quantum of Solace. So let's continue part two with Roberto Schaefer, with us looking at how so many people are involved with shooting a scene, and then a whole lot more. Let's go! So we're talking about all the different people that are involved in all these, all, all the scenes, the second unit people and all of this. There, there's so many pieces to the puzzle to create a great film. So Roberto, tell us if this is a crazy way of looking at this thing, but we see the screenwriters kind of telling the story in words and mm -hmm. then location scout team kind of translates the words along with guidance from the director and maybe the DP into what locations would tell that kind of story in pictures. But then the DP, the director of photography, interprets the translations into telling the story through the lens with motion. Is this kind of okay, the way of looking at it? And how did you translate quantum of solace with all of these pieces? Well, in, in a sense, that makes sense. But you left out one important person is the production designer. Okay. And the location manager person, yes, they can make suggestions, but they've got to be told, as you said, by the director, but also the production designer is way more important in a sense than the location manager. Okay. The location person can try to help. And sometimes they're really, some of them are really great and really come up with places. A lot of them are just, I hate to say it, but a lot of them are hacks that just go back to places they've already shot in because they know it's easy oh, yeah. and they go back mm -hmm. and they say, well, can you get me this? They go, no, no, they'll never, never be available because they're, they have friends that they can use another place or they get kickbacks or whatever. And not to, you know, most location managers are not like that, but it does happen occasionally that it becomes a, a lazy thing. No, I, it's, it's the production designer and the director generally go out before the DP even and pick locations. Okay. I sort of, we fight back against that as much as possible to be involved in that as early as possible because I've had it and I know other people have had it where they get stuck saying, well, we're going to shoot. You have your choice, this location. We found these two places, which you like better. And you look at them and say, well, neither of them are really great because it's a day scene and they're both South facing and we're just going to have flat daylight on them all day long and it doesn't fit the feeling. Yeah. So let's look at something else. Well, but we've already decided the director, the, the production designer has, has convinced the director that this architecture is the perfect thing or the, those kind of things happen. But yeah, it's, it's, and then, yes. And then I have to interpret through the use of the camera, the lens, the choices, the, the movements, right. how to get the story across visually by camera in concert with everything that the director and the production designer have already planned. Yeah. When you can do it all together in advance, like in Quantum of Solace, we went out, Dennis and Mark and I and, and uh, Michael Lerman, the first AD, we were all on that 14-day pre-scout and we did every scout together. We went to South America and scouted Panama and Peru and Chile before anything else mm -hmm. and found locations. And again, we didn't have a great script at that point. Even then we had things we knew sort of what we had to do. Yeah. Well, things were kind of open. So we were able to plan very well 
and how to move from one place to the next and how to, you know, buildings to use that would work and, and all of that. So, and I think Dennis and Mark and I worked very closely on that movie to really make it cohesive yeah. and make it less of a struggle than it could have been. Yeah, the cinematography is spectacular. I mean, every scene is is great. So obviously this pre-planning and getting you involved early on is is a preference. Then Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, right, it so, paid off. Yeah, paid so off when you time. when you're sitting there and you're looking at those locations and I, I think about it for quantum specifically, what were your favorite places to shoot there? Yeah. And either because they were challenges or they were just cool places to work in. And how much of it was actually filmed in Siena? Okay, my favorite places. I don't think I have any non-favorite places from that whole, okay. that whole movie. Um, going, let's see, from London is London. We mm -hmm. had some good stuff in London and on stage in London with some giant trans lights, like where right. the apartment building that they're in, where she discovers the stuff where the guy had been. They mm -hmm. look under the floor and they find the stuff and whatever. That was right. a set. And then the exterior, this, the, the balcony, we shot on stage and we had a giant trans light of that actual location outside the city center office building thing was in the exterior. That was the real location. Then we had stage stuff that was built. that was beautiful. The inside of MI6, a lot of stuff was cut out that was shot in there. It was really cool with some great transitions too. Then we went from there. We went to Panama and we spent nine weeks in Panama wow. and we shot a little bit in Panama city, which was lovely. I really enjoyed Panama city. It was very and very fun. Then we went to Cologne, which is kind of like Havana on a bad day. It's really run down, really dangerous. Gangs and shooting. We had to have armed guards and police with us all the time. That, that's where the every Haiti block scenes were shot, had a different right? gang running it. The Haiti What's scenes that? were shot. There, that's right? all of all of Haiti yeah, yeah, yeah. was shot yeah. in Cologne and the boat chase. It's dilapidated, but it's 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 so visual. I mean, it's so perfect. And we all stayed together in a hotel resort that had been the school where Noriega attended school when he wow. was. There's college or I think it was, you know, high, college, which was like high school. It had been turned into a hotel with a giant swimming pool and the entire crew, we all stayed there, 300 people. It was really, it was fun. We had a good time there. And then we went from there to Chile to the Atacama Desert, which was amazing. Antofagasta was the town we shot in. And then we went up into the desert to the European Southern Observatory, yes. which is what the hotel is based on. The exteriors okay. were shot there. And that was amazing because we got to go out at night with the astronomers, the scientists oh, there. Wow, wow, wow. It's a place, it's at 7,000 feet above sea level, zero humidity and zero atmosphere. Yeah, it hasn't rained there in over 400 years. Nothing lives there. There's not a plant. There's not an animal, not an insect, anything. And it's the clearest sky. And that's why they chose it for. Yes. So we went out there. They took us out. We let us stay up there in the hotel one night uh -huh. and we went out and with the astronomers and they just pointed out with a green laser. It was a, I mean, it's 360 degree complete canopy bowl all around you. More stars and constellations and meteors and anything you could, you can't even imagine what it is. Yeah. It's, there's not a, there's not a black space in the sky almost. It's all just completely filled with wow. all the stars. Spectacular. That was one of the highlights of my life. Yeah. Getting to see that. Wow. And, yep. uh, you know, of course, Italy. What can I say? Siena, we shot the entire paleo sequence in Siena. The underground, the tunnel, the real tunnel we shot there in Siena, although part of it was rebuilt on stage for staging some uh, car stuff where they go into the, 
uh, into the underground chamber to interrogate the guy. That was done on stage with some green screen. We built that underground thing on stage and all the tunnels and the running through and all that was done on stage in London. But all the stuff around Siena and going up the stairs and up into that apartment, that was real. But then going up the bell tower was built on stage okay. and going over the top and into the art gallery. And that was all on stage with VFX. And that was one of the things where I said with the transition. And I said specifically to Dan Bradley, cause he was going to shoot that scene. Okay. And I said, Dan, what I don't want to have happen here is what happened in Bourne where Matt Damon in Morocco jumps off the roof. The camera goes with him to the window he goes through the window and goes into the room and the camera stays outside and cuts. And then you're inside. I said, no, they, we've got to go in with them. So when he goes <laughs> off that roof into the art gallery and breaks through that glass roof, I want the camera to go with him and turn around with him and mm. follow him. And through VFX, we were able to do that with two seamless camera mm -hmm. attachments and moves with Technocrane and a Descender rig and right. a bunch of stuff. And Dan actually ran it but it was to my specifications. Although the trickiest thing was that we had built the set almost to the, to the roof of the stage in Pinewood. So there was almost no room to put blue screen at the top and to put sunlight and everything it was really up to the rafters, but it all, it all worked out great in yeah. the end. It was gorgeous. And then in Italy, also the, the place where we shot in Ortobello, uh, Orbitello, sorry, Orbitello outside of Rome, which was where Giancarlo Giannini's house was. Oh, that's, that, gorgeous. You know, that, that's gorgeous. That beautiful place. That was a real location. It was yeah, wonderful. Yeah. And of course, anytime you shoot in Italy and you're on a good production and all, the food. <laughs> you know, in Siena, yeah. I remember uh -huh. Mark and I would we'd break for lunch and we'd look at all the crew and they were like going off to the catering. And now they brought the <laughs> catering from England. And Mark and I would look at each other and say, okay, where should we go today? And we would go walk up and find another restaurant. And, and we'd come back and we had... One of our meals, I remember, was one of the best I've ever had. It was three of pastas that was phenomenal. And we came back to the set before the break was over and ran into one of the costumers and said, so did you find something good for lunch? He says, I went to catering. He says, you went to catering? He says, really? He says, she goes, yeah, you know, it's easy. But I said, but the food here, you're in Siena. The food here is insane. <laughs> it's on. amazing. Italy. Yeah, but, you know, I, I couldn't fathom it. But no, so yeah, shooting there was great. The food... Panama had great local food. Fortunately, my wife was with me and she would go out shopping for lunch for me every day and get like fish from the vendors on the, by, wow. by the harbor nice. or chicken or all different things when everybody else went into catering because I couldn't stand the catering. Yeah. You're, it's best yeah. to eat local. It really is. Yeah. 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 Even in, in uh, Chile, I think we had some great food in Antofagasta. Yeah, the food in Italy is fabulous. I mean, yeah. it's just like, yeah. why would you take <laughs> catering? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> British catering. I had top lunch of at the, the, the square in Siena once. And uh, yeah, I've been to Italy six times. It's great. Fabulous. Stuff. Yeah. So one of the questions that I had was, was as I watched some of your prior work leading up to quantum and there weren't a lot of big chase scenes in there and you're coming into a bond movie. You already gave us some of this in terms of the fact that you talked about the second unit and bringing in the people that have, that are really good at doing that. But was there a transition you had to make mentally as you're sitting there saying like, okay, when we're prepping this thing out, what are we going to do here? Or was it just, you just kind of handed it off and said, we kind of, we need this chase and we need these kind of things to it. You guys tell us how to do it. Yeah. Once we had the script outline and we knew that this was going to be a chase here or there, the bond production had already hired and okay. figured that we're, we're going to have, where a second unit shoots this. 
Okay. Second unit shoots. They're so used to that. They were actually disappointed that we didn't have a miniatures unit on this. This was the first Bond movie in years that didn't do miniatures. Really? Yeah, we had less units than, than every other Bond film. So they said, yeah, don't worry about it. This is going to be the second unit's going to do this. Okay. But then we meet with second unit and go over it all because parameters and there's ways we want to have it done and certain lens choices and ways of shooting that it all go with us. So, but no, I didn't have a lot of chase stuff before that. I've done some stuff in other movies here or there and enjoy doing it, but nothing at that, to that level. Since then, of course, Dan Bradley hired me to shoot chase scene in bright. Right. With him. So, and that was fun to do. But again, to me, it was like working with a director who really knows how to shoot a chase scene, how to do cars, mm-hmm. where to put the camera. Cause it's so important yes. that either the, the director knows it or the DP knows it just mm-hmm. instinctively knows. Cause otherwise you can just waste so much time and lose so much energy and have so many disasters like yeah. real disasters, accidents and things, if you don't do it properly. Foot chases I've done also. That right. stuff mm-hmm. was more in my, in my wheelhouse, as they say. Yeah, okay. you had every kind of chase in quantum. Planes, yeah. boats, yeah. foot races. Yeah, just no races. trains. Car races. Yes, now, no trains. I have one, one other thing that I was thinking about when we were talking about quantum and, and the polio scene. They hold it twice a year. It's a big race. People that don't know about it, 10 horses and riders, and they represent their areas of the city and so on. And when the, the shots were going on, it's beautiful. You have, I was just thinking about this now, that you have this chase versus chase kind of thing and race versus race, whichever way you like to look at it, going on simultaneously. The, the polio above this festive event, and then below is Bond chasing Mitchell, and the Tusca opera is a similar thing where the opera is going on and this world is happening up there, but then Bond's trying to escape Green and his goons below and so on. Was there some kind of implication there that as things go along in the world above, the festive polio, the opera, all these nice things and niceties in life, that below the surface is this hidden world of espionage that's happening exactly at the same time? Was that in there somewhere? I, I wouldn't say it was consciously written okay. to be in there, but I think it's definitely always implied yes. that there's... That's what I'm asking. But because because a, a, a secret agent right there is two-faced. Yeah. He's an he's a export right. dealer and he's a, he's a killer spy. Yeah. So that whole dichotomy is part of it. So bringing it as a, on a level of the above ground and the underground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I mean, I think it's... I think it's always implied. Yes. Okay. I thought that was pretty it's, cool. It's, it's nice. It's nice to to bring that up, though, to yeah. say, huh? Yeah. Yeah. You have the chase within the chase and the entertainment chase above, which is yes. like hundreds of years old, yeah. and this new, yes. very different, darker world. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Literally. Yeah. All right. Now, a little while ago, we talked about the fact that the the Tosca scene kind of got. I don't want to say this. Copied, borrowed, <laughs> borrowed. Yeah, no, it, it 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 inspired. Yes, yes. there you go. Okay. Yes. The so let's talk about a scene that was inspired in your movie from a prior Bond movie. That shot of strawberry fields on the bed mm-hmm. covered in the oil is extremely familiar to any Goldfinger fan, except it's gold instead right? of the oil. How much work was done in trying to set that up to be as close to the shot in Goldfinger? Or was it just kind of we're taking the premise and we're going to kind of make it look and feel? No, no, it was totally, totally intentional. Yeah. Um, I, I said, I know I said to Mark, let's just 
it's such an iconic shot yeah. from the history of Bond. We have an opportunity now to really, because we were, we were using Goldfinger, Dr. No, Goldfinger, that period as our mid-century visual touchstone for architecture, for design, for, for the sets, for camera angles and stuff already. I said, let's just, let's use that as an obvious homage. This is the homage, the, the yeah. 100% homage. But we don't have to show, we don't have to cover our ass this time. So right. the chair doesn't have to be there. Yeah. So no, I had a frame. I had a frame printed out okay. from Goldfinger mm -hmm. and we had camera and we set it up matched. Oh, yeah. The angle oh, of the absolutely. Angle, the yeah. height, the thing, the, 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 the focal length, everything we copied totally to match. Well, yeah. as a Bond Great. fan, we loved it. Yeah, we love it. <laughs> it was well, just we, like, hope, we, we, hope, we hoped so that it would be appreciated that way. Absolutely. Right. So, that, so then another homage I think you have there, and I may be reading into this wrong, but especially because you're starting with Sienna, there seems to be a lot in terms of the costuming, the lighting, the scenery, where there's all these yellow, amber, gold hues throughout. And in Goldfinger, Goldfinger always wore yellow. Mm -hmm. and this color is just see, just seeping through what's happening in Quantum. And is that, is that was that another homage back to Goldfinger or was that just yeah. because Sienna was so yellow? No, that was, it wasn't only Sienna, it was also, you know, the hotel in, in right. Uh, Right. In in the desert. Yeah. Right. It was a, a palette choice okay. between the production designer, costume designer, myself, and Mark that we wanted to embrace. That was the look of Goldfinger. That was the feeling. Right. And whatever we could do to hark back to. Oh, that's great. And keep that. So it wasn't just a one-off, okay, here's a Goldfinger copy shot, blah, blah, blah. Right. It was the whole feeling of the whole movie right. was supposed to be, but enhanced to today's standards. That's cool. It worked well. Yeah, yeah, and we yeah. appreciate it. So, and that's what counts. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. Because I can appreciate it as much as, you know, whatever, Mark can love it and Dennis can, but if the audience doesn't see it and just get it, yeah. then we, have, we haven't succeeded enough. Yeah, it's great stuff. Now, in Quantum, you had a lot to do with fire and explosions and so on. And what challenges do these elements bring to you in designing, Roberto, how you're going to shoot a scene or how the next scene is going to unfold and be shot. Obviously, some of this was added digitally. As you said, there were no miniatures right. teams on this on this. Yeah, film. I was surprised when you said that because I yeah. figured some of the explosions and stuff might have been. So how yeah, no, work? it was all it was all practical. Wow. The visual effects were added, obviously, at the exterior on the roof there. Right. We couldn't harm their real hotel. Yeah. yeah. So we shot Darn stuff <laughs> and, and they did we did do rigging on the hotel and you know, coming off the walls and going into the, the windows and through the balconies. We shot that stuff really there. Okay. But then we got to all of the other really interior stuff of the hotel. Dennis recreated the hotel, was inspired by that yeah. on a two thirds scale in the 007 stage wow. where we knew we had complete control. So between production design, construction and special effects, it was Chris Corbald who's, the Corbold family are just amazing. I just met his brother, Neil, who's also one of the top world special effects people. He designed and did all the explosions and pieces that could, with construction pieces, that, like the bridge that they go across inside that goes down, they yeah. come back up again. We could you know, reset it with flame in different places that are resettable, that's safe. And then visual effects did some enhancing of the flames. But to be honest, so much of the firework there is real. 
Some of it's, you know, just pushed a flame bars in front of the camera. Some is fire in the distance, but it's all based on real fire in there and real explosions. The room where he and where Daniel and Olga go in and, and she remembering with her parents when she was a kid with the, yeah, right. with the fire, they were, there was fire around them. It wasn't oh. as close to them as yeah. it, that was enhanced more just for their safety and for their comfort. But it was pretty much where he goes crashing through and the fire, the beam comes down. Right. That was his stunt double did that, but with wow. a real beam with real fire, <laughs> Daniel went into the room himself through the fire because he loves to do as much as he can yeah. and yeah. does great stuff. And then the shot at the end of them coming out of the building with, you know, breaking through the, where he exploded the, the oxygen bottles yeah. right. and went out. We shot that at Pinewood. They rebuilt like four windows of the face of the building wow. and had it destroyed and had them coming out and down with real fire around them and them stepping down. Wow. So it was, it was a lot of real fire and just, you know, understanding safety, knowing that we had to do it safely as effectively as we could and as beautifully as we could and as real as we could, but keeping it safe for the actors and the crew, because the stupidest thing that I can think of in my life or the movie business would be to kill somebody or have somebody badly injured making a movie. Cause it's, as they say in the end, it's only a movie. Yeah, that's right. Right. That's tragic. As I mentioned, Mark Milsom, who was my operator, that and my assistant operator on finding Oblivion passed away two years ago on an accident in Ghana shooting a stunt car stunt. And he was hit by a flying car and was killed. It's just, it's, it's unthinkable. You know, you just can't put yourself or people can't put themselves in those positions. Right. It's not worth it. Yeah. The scene you're talking about is flawless the way it unfolds and no one looking at that scene, no matter how many times you look at it would think that all of what you just described was happening. Exactly. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's movie magic. Yeah. Yeah. You gotta yeah. And that's right. when it's done well. Some movies you see where they have money, but at the end they tend to run out and they skimp on some of the VFX things and they right. look cheap and you can read them. That's like, that's like, why go through all that yes. just to, just to give up the, the game at the end. Well, another movie you did, we talked about the kite runner and I, I saw you interviewed once where you said that the kites at the end were actually VFX. All the kites were VFX. All of the kites. Yeah. Where they have the, where where the boys at the beginning are playing and they're going, as they take off, they were real kites. And as soon as they go up in the sky, we shot some plates of the, of real kites flying around for VFX to use. Okay. But all of that stuff, the chasing and the, that and everything was all visual effects. I mean, we had a professional kite. I think he's a Afghan professional kite, kite guy who makes and does kite fighting was there. Wow. Flying the kites for us, and he was there as our as our uh, expert. <laughs> well, he was our expert telling him telling VFX also how the kites would really move and yes. what they would do and how they yeah. would cut each other and how you cut the string. Because none of us, you know, we don't come from a culture. Where, for me, kite and flight is flying yeah, kites. Right. You put them up there and you yeah. watch them and got them up. Yeah. Uh, so the whole twenty or thirty I'd feet. Never, we were thrilled. <laughs> yeah, I never heard about them. They, that they sharpen. They put glass. No, I on the, didn't you know, powdered glass on those strings to, so they could cut each other, the whole other world. <laughs> so when, when you're, is. when you're making something where you could have just filmed kites in the air, how, how do you make the determination that you're going to take it and go with VFX instead of a- actual film? Or you like talk that? to the experts okay. who would have to fly the kites. Okay. And they say, yeah, we could possibly 
get the action you want, but maybe not in the amount of time. And it depends on the wind that day. It depends on this and that. And if you really want the cameras close to the kites, it's never going to happen. Okay. You'd have to shoot from the ground with long lenses. Mm-hmm. Even now, nowadays with drones, we had a, uh, we did some 35 millimeter helicopter shots, small helicopters, six foot wingspan right. with a lightweight 35 millimeter camera on it to do a couple of the shots in that movie, like from the ground where they're flying the kites at the beginning, going up those shots, mm-hmm. those were shot 35 with a RC helicopter. Okay. And we did another where they're, the Jeep is driving in the mountains in the background, you're looking down at it and goes up and then the Jeep goes, that was shot with an RC helicopter. Okay. But you can't get those helicopters close enough or have enough control or the movement for the way these kites fly. So it just, you know, we talked about it and said, there's no way that we could do it in the way that Mark really wanted it to be there with the kites and feel the drama of these. These were characters. Right. They weren't just kites at a distance. You needed to be like you do in an emotional scene. You need to be close with the characters. You want to be close with the actors to feel their drama, to feel their emotions. Being there with the kites, that kind of movement and closeness heightens your interaction with what's going on as a viewer. You know, you feel part of it. Right. So now you just mentioned Mark. So it's Mark Forster. And you guys have done a bunch of movies together with you as the director of photography and he was the director of the movie. So as you go on, does it get easier or harder? Is it do you do you just expect that, okay, now I know how he's going to do this? Or is it I make an assumption erroneously that he's going to want X and he really wants Y? How, um, how does that dynamic work for you? Probably a little of both. So we did nine movies together. Okay. And the first two were super low budget and they were very experimental. And we didn't have really any prep time. We just okay. got in it. Not too much prep time. On the second movie, we had some location scouting, but because it was done in the dogma style where I wasn't lighting. I was just okay. using available light. So right. we had to use rooms and windows and places and time of day that would work. But starting with Monsters Ball, where we got into a movie where we had real highly paid actors right. and a short time to shoot. I think we had 23 days or something. Wow. And shooting on 35, which was our first movie on 35. We, as I said, we planned it out. We had a Bible. We knew everything we were going to do. So from that movie on, every movie, we did that Bible. Okay. We did every shot. And so we shot, we sat down for days or weeks, almost months before we started shot anything on camera. Okay. Planning the movie and shooting it on paper. All right. So we knew going into it every day what we were wanting to do. And sometimes, you know, you get there and with a rehearsal with an actor, you see something, Mark will say, oh, you know, I just saw, maybe we could do an hour or I'll go, you know, I know we planned on doing this, but look what he's doing. Or the actor says, I'm not, Mark says, because he plans it out in, in prep. Yeah, I want the actor to do the beginning of the dialogue sitting on that chair over there. And then he's going to get up and walk over to the to there and pick up something and then continue the dialogue. And then the dialogue cut will be there. And that's why I plan the shots to be. Okay. And then we get there and the actor does something completely different and we have to, run with it but in general we're on the same page okay the main challenge is that every movie we kind of want to change it up and get more plus they're very different kinds of movies they're not they're not the same genre right so it's a way of approaching a new movie not shooting it the same way you did the last one okay figuring a way to tell the story that fits that story 
and that works with the time period or the tempo or, and Mark will say that I want this one to be a slower film or this one want more action. Where on Bond, he says, I never want this to stop. He says, right. from the first shot, that first opening shot of the right. chase, yeah. he says, he's, I know he told Second Unit also and, and the visual effects guy, he said, I want this to be 15 minutes where the audience doesn't take a breath. <laughs> they're just watching it and they're just caught and they just forget to breathe. That worked. Yeah. And it worked. Yeah. yeah. So stuff. going into it, knowing those things, you plan your, your shots and your way of doing things. And occasionally, you know, something, there's a misunderstanding here or there or whatever, or the weather doesn't cooperate and you have to figure something else out, but it's basically no real surprises. It's being on, being in tune. And by the ninth movie, I mean, we really were pretty much in our, in our working way was really that he worked with the actors and the script. And I would work with how to put that on screen, how to tell it with the camera. Yeah. Now you did those nine movies over 10 years, right? Yes. So yeah, you did nine yeah. movies in 10 years with actually Mark. over 12 years. Because wow. the first one we did, which I just watched the other night again, called Loungers, we oh. did in 95. Oh. And it was at the 96 Sundance Slamdance Festival. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you seem like a pretty good team. Any plans in the future to do another with Mark? No, because we got separated at World War Z due to studio politics. Uh. And when that happened, our schedules shifted. Yeah. And I wasn't available for the next thing he was doing. And he worked with somebody else and ended up going on and doing mm -hmm. the next, sure. the next two movies. And I think his T did a TV series and then two movies with Matthias. Okay. That's cool. All right. I got another question. Now we've kind of touched on this before. I think when you were saying about some scene that got cut in another movie. So I wanted to ask, yeah. you've done a lot of films and you have to have in your mind a, a, a handful of these, your greatest disappointment that you were so excited to film, but it ended up on the cutting room floor in, in any film and then in Quantum also. Wow. Well, there was a lot a of, there were a lot of things in Best in Show okay. just because of the humor yeah. that got cut. Yeah. As in Waiting for Guffman that got cut out just because they, they had to be short movies and it was just too much. And we did alternate endings and things that were so funny. But in Quantum, yeah, there's this one, one scene that I can recall right now that took place in the MI6 headquarters where we, Dennis had built this incredible interior, which, you know, you see the glass walls and the staircases and all this on stage. Yeah. And we did this long motion control tracking shot down the corridor following Rory Kinnear as he's going to M's office, which is through glass. And we're going to do this tracking shot behind him, following him as he goes into the office and then it tracks back and it cuts. And then it's a motion control shot where we go through. And as we get there, before he gets in, we actually see him in the office already at the desk talking to her. And then it starts to track back as they come to look at the window that then goes blank. Yeah. So, so nobody can see in. That whole scene got cut. The only thing they got is he's in the office <laughs> and they're looking at the wall and it goes blank. But that whole exterior going in, time-wise, it just was... How you know, much time you, was? How much time did you get cut with that? Right? How much work was done? How much? Oh, how much work? Yeah. How much prep time? And all oh. of the. Yeah, those are the silly things. You probably lost a day and a half wow. of <laughs> of shooting and prep wow. for a scene that got cut because it was thirty seconds too long. And, you know, a lot of times they just feel it slows down the action. At this point, yeah, keep the story moving. Right. And it was yeah, it was a it was a cool shot. 
but you can't have every cool shot in the movie. Right. And sometimes you start to salivate over these cool shots and you realize, oh, yeah. what am I, what am I, this is, I'm just, is just, just for me. I'm really enjoying it, but it doesn't really bring the movie any farther forward. It's just cool. Yeah. And sometimes you have the luxury to use those and sometimes you don't. I'm so trying to think of any others. I'm sure the host had some. That was another just absolutely gorgeous movie. Yeah. Well, working with Nicholas, who's an amazing visual director, after Gattaca, said, mm-hmm. how can I not want to work with him? Yeah. yeah. It was pretty great. So on the flip side, if you, could sh- if you could shoot any scene over again, it's like, okay, oh man, this thing made it in the movie, but I, if I could have done it this way, or I do it this way now, do you have any scenes where you, you look at it now and you go like, oh man, I wish I had done it a different way? There was something I was thinking of the other day where I just wish I had lit the person from the other side. Hmm. Oh yeah. Well, just in, in Westworld and I was doing second unit, right? Not really second unit, additional photography in Westworld season, the new season. I did episodes of some big scenes in episode one and episode eight. In episode eight, there's a scene where we had to shoot a separate, what's her name? The actress, she plays Hale against blue screen because she's supposed to be in a completely separate environment than, than Evan Rachel Wood. Dolores is in this scene, but they're acting together. Okay. But she's actually a, one of those, she's, she disappears. She's, she's a vision. Mm-hmm. And so I shot her not realizing that the angle as she was going to come to the camera, I did this lighting gag and this whole thing to separate her from the reality of the other scene. I should have done it from the other side. And every time I look at it now, it disturbs uh, me because it's like, <laughs> it would have been so much more effective and look better if it had been done from the other side. Mm. entire scenes i'm sure there must be there must be 20 scenes yeah. at least I that i would say oh god can i just shoot that over again but nothing really comes to mind and i tried you know i i looked earlier and tried to think of it but yeah. i would probably have to look at all the movies again and go oh, okay that's the scene i should have redone that <laughs> I'm one sure I you'll done find yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're oh, yeah. Perfectionist. <laughs> yeah it's hard to look at one's own movies again afterwards yeah i mean monsters ball I only looked at like probably 10 years after I shot it. Mark says he never looks at anything afterwards. Mm. Never looks again. Really? Can't, can't bear to. Because all (laughs) you see are the the mistakes. Uh, Yeah, you want to change. You know, you see the weaknesses. You see the, yeah, yeah, the things you could have done better. You could have done different. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So is there a thread in your movies, all the movies you've done that a viewer can say, ah, that's a Roberto Schaefer movie? (laughs) my name on the credits. (laughs) I try to approach every story specific to that story and how the director feels it should be told and what the actors give me, what the locations give and what the feeling of the script is, what the story is supposed to be. So no, I don't have any kind of a, a look. I don't think I do have a tendency. I know that I prefer for framing I do like to off-frame people. I do like to use okay. CinemaScope when I can. Right. I do like to play with headroom when it works for the character or the scene or what they're doing, like a, a movie like Ida. Okay. If you saw Ida or Ida, the brilliant Polish yeah. black and white film that had the most amazing framing that was just worked for that movie. It wouldn't have worked for so many other things, but it worked for that movie so brilliantly. Do I have other things for... No, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I like to, I tend to like to, when you want to do a close up of somebody, when you're talking about emotional stuff, yeah. to be closer with a wider angle lens okay. rather than staying back with a longer lens. Okay. Style wise, yeah, that's probably 
as close as I can think of my style. Okay. And it's something I did like very stylistically in Monsters Ball. I think if you look at 90% of the movie, nobody is ever center framed. Right. Mm -hmm. Except for Puffy, P. Diddy, Puffy. He was Puffy at the time. Yeah. In in the prison when she's visiting him. Yeah. He's at the table. He's sitting in the center. And when you see him in the cell, he's sitting in the center. Uh Because to me, he was the only character in the entire movie who completely knew what the rest of his life was. He knew his future. He knew his... He knew everything, what was going to happen. Right. Push the button. Right. This is it. I'm here to die. Mm-hmm. Everybody else was like, Hallie was, her character was so out in the world of this. Hank was so crazed by everything that happened to him. And Keith was so troubled. And, and her, his father, uh, Peter, was just such a crotchety old yes. racist cracker who was just off the wall. There was nobody that was balanced. Puffy was, he was a killer, but he was balanced. The kid didn't know what was going on too. He was always like, right. Right. Looking for something. Yeah. So maybe occasionally there's a shot where the kid, when he's putting the picture that his father drew up on the wall, he yeah. may have been in the center of the frame, but that was a tie between you know, him and his dad. Yeah. But no, it's, it's generally trying to use the camera to tell the story in his, sometimes in subtle ways that nobody would ever viewer doesn't see, but hopefully it gets to them. They feel it. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. That's yeah, well, I, I don't think I have a, a style. I'm not Robert Richardson, who you can say, well, every you see this hard top light burning yeah. down on somebody, overexposing, you know, 12 stops, yeah. right. Bob Richardson. And he made a career with that. And he's a great cinematographer. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe I wouldn't use that theme every time, but <laughs> I, I mean, I know I wouldn't. I, I would right. use it. I used it once yeah. where it fit, but. Okay. Yeah. So as, as you... Is then we kind of roll out of this a little bit. Yeah. You know, what are you doing these days? Right. What are you working on? Have you dreamed of doing another Bond movie? Kind of. I always, well, right now, of course, I'm locked at home in the pandemic, trying to do a couple of picture books, coffee table books, which I'm not as motivated as I should be to finish them, but I'm working on. And one is I'm quite excited about. It's a book of the Polaroid exposure tests from all the movies I've done and TV shows uh, oh, or commercials cool. oh, wow. and music videos from starting from Waiting for Guffman. I'm well, actually starting earlier, a couple of music videos in Italy. I have all my black and white Polaroids, which I've kept for years, and I've scanned them all, and I'm putting them into a coffee table book to, I can't sell yeah. because I don't have rights to the images, Right. but I can make them and give them to friends, yeah. I hope. <laughs> I hope nobody will sue me for that. <laughs> and then I'm doing another trying to put another coffee table book based on my family history and the matchbooks that my mother collected through the oh. years since the, since the forties. Other than that. Yeah. I mean, I'll do another bond movie. I would always hope that I would get called that they would ask me to come back and do another one. But as Barbara says, the director, the DP is chosen by the director. Right. You know, unless okay. they have a big objection, they're going to go with who the director wants. Sure. Right. Unless another director that I know or that wants me calls me, it's not going to happen. And it's okay. I did my history. I'm only the second American who was a DP on a Bond oh, wow. movie. I was going to ask you because you were yeah. saying about the... Oh, yeah, Bob Ellswit was the first. Okay. He did Tomorrow Never Dies or whatever it was called. So so Bob Ellswit, who's a hero of mine, I think he's one of the best American cinematographers ever and still today. So I'm number two and I'm very proud of that. And there's only been now one, one American director, yeah. I guess. 
Carrie Fukunaga was the first American right. director. Yep. Yeah, right. There aren't yeah. very many, even on the continuation authoring process of the, for the book, for the Ian Fleming publications people. Yeah. Raymond Benson, who lives about 30 miles from us, was the first American author to be authorized by the Ian Fleming publication mm. people to con- do the continuation novels. And so, yeah, so it's nice to be one of the first few. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it, and it's because Mark called, Mark asked for me and I interviewed, I had to interview with, with Barbara and Michael yeah. here in LA and they okayed me and they, they felt I was up to the task. They wouldn't let Mark bring the production designer that we wanted to bring on that he had, that we had on stay and on, on Stranger Than Fiction, oh. Kevin Thompson, who's a brilliant, brilliant production designer. They felt that he didn't have enough experience with multiple big sets worldwide handling enough things in different places. Yeah. And it was probably true. He didn't have as big experience as Dennis Gassner had, who had done golden compass and a lot of big all over the place things. And I, I have no qualms. Dennis did a phenomenal job and I love him. He's a great guy. Kevin, I think could have done a great job too, but yeah, so there were not, not too many Americans have been in. It's a very British. Yes. It thing. Is. It okay. Really so now you, you mentioned Barbara said that the director brings the DP and the yes. crew. And you mentioned the fact that there's been one American director. Any desire on your part to become, do the other side of the camera and do the directing? Only if I found a story that I so dearly wanted to tell that I felt that I would, you know, was worth, not just worth it in the sense of spending five years or whatever to try to get it made or this or that, or just even worth it for me to want to have it as something to show and say that, Yes, I did this. It's mine. I've thought about a couple of few things. I did, when I was living in Italy, I did write an abbreviated script. Basically, it's an outline with a little bit of dialogue for a story, which I wanted to develop. And then I got, I showed it to Marks when I first met him some years ago. And he said, it's not very good. <laughs> and I, I listened to him and I put it away. I kind of made a mistake there. I think I should have developed it. That I still like because I liked the, the idea of it. And then I was approached to direct a movie by a producer who I'd worked with on commercials who said she followed my career and wanted me to do this North Carolina woods family drama that tried to develop and get going. And I actually did some pre-production on and went to some location scouts and all, but they never got the funding. It never happened. And it was, I, to be honest, it wasn't a script that I was, I felt I had to do. Yeah. So when it went away, I wasn't disappointed. I didn't feel it really was me. And then another script I was offered with a friend of mine in New Orleans to do a movie that he wrote based on the life of Professor Longhair. And uh, I would love to do that. And we, at one point I talked to an actor, did an interview with him to see if he would play the part and talked to some, to Professor Longhair's family, his, his uh, daughter and some other people, but he's never been able to get the funding for it. So it's Mm -hmm. never happened. If it happened, I would love to get back into that because I love New Orleans and that whole scene and the jazz fest and the whole idea of how Professor Longhair disappeared and then came back. Mm-hmm. And then I've been trying to develop at long distance, not hard. I'm not pushing very hard on it, but my partner is doing a little bit more with a, a writer that I've done some interview books and uh, cinematography books with who lives in Melbourne, Australia. He's a, he's an academic, but he's also written quite a few books of, also about visual effects and about composers, music, film composers and all guy, Lindsay Coleman, and he's trying to put together a briefing for a script, an original script written based on the first two novels of William Gibson, of Neuromancer and Mona Lisa Overdrive, 
combined in a way because I, I love William Gibson. I love those two novels. Uh, I don't know how doable they would be yet. Definitely they have to be adapted quite heavily. And then the other one that I would love to do, but there's, I don't see any way of ever doing it and I couldn't adapt it. It would be Gravity's Rainbow, which is still one of my favorite books of all time. But how you make that into a movie, I think you're just asking for a disaster. So short answer long, long answer to a short question. No, I'm not pushing for it. I'm not really looking for it. And I think to be a director out there, you have to really, really want, really look. A lot of DPs I know are shooting, directing TV series now, episodes, single episodes here and there. Some because they shot the series and then they get in the deal, they get to direct an episode and some others are just, they're moving into directing TV and stuff. I'm, I don't know if I would do one of those, you know, if somebody asked me to do one, I might try it. I just have this weird thing from having shot TV series, knowing that so many times the director on a TV show, especially when it's episodics that they do one show and then they're gone, they do two shows and they're gone, is that they're really traffic cops. There's not a lot of storytelling directing there. There's momentary things in emotion and stuff, but I don't think it's really getting to the heart of the matter and telling something that's yours because it's part of an ongoing series. Yeah. So I'm not pushing hard for that. My agent hasn't looked for that for me. More to shoot some TV series because there's more and more interesting series coming out now. And I have shot a few pilots, only one that actually went to series, which was The Family Tree. The others never got to series. No, it's, you know, I guess it's either you really want to be a director or it falls into your lap because of whatever social norms are happening. So you get offered something. I'm really happy making images, shooting, being a cinematographer. So, yeah. If people want to find out more information about Roberto Schaefer, where should they look? There's a couple of places you can look, which is uh, www.robertoschaefer.com. Okay. You might want to look up the spelling. It's like Schaefer Beer. Probably nobody who's watching this or listening to this has any idea what Schaefer Beer is. I know what Schaefer Beer was. <laughs> it's Eastern, based out of Pennsylvania. Yep. Low-budget beer company. So it's Roberto Schaefer, one word, S-C-H-A-E-F-E-R.com. And then I also have a lot of work, which you can see in more varied stuff on my agent's website, which is www.iconictalentagency.com slash, I think, Roberto Schaefer. Okay. Something like that. If you go to iconictalentagency.com, you'll find me there. All right. Well, that's a wrap. Thanks a ton, Roberto. This has been a whole lot of fun and really very enlightening. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. It's been our pleasure. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Roberto Schaefer, Director of Photography for Quantum of Solace and so many other great movies. Be sure to subscribe to our show, Cracking the Code of Spy Movies, through your favorite podcast app. Or listen on our site at spymovienavigator.com and give us a five-star rating when you review us. Send us a voicemail and let us know what you think and what you would like us to talk about next. This has been Dan Silvestri and Tom Pizzotto of SpyMovieNavigator.com. Thanks for listening to our two-part podcast with Roberto Schaefer. We appreciate it. What should we do next? Leave us a message on our website, SpyMovieNavigator.com. Subscribe to our show and please tell your friends about it. Together, we're cracking the code of spy movies.